Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash inodino. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android device, Kindle, or MP3 player. This week, we have an interview with Taya Boothu. We have Dinosaur of the Day, Uteranus. We have a bunch of dinosaur news. And we'd like to give an especially big thank you to our Stegosaurus patrons, Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, and John Heck. And happy belated birthdays to both Lucas and Eli, if you're listening. Yep. <laughs> Very belated at this point. <laughs> For one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to join this awesome group of patrons, the Stegosaurus level or other levels, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur, and it's, quote, the earliest known titanosauriform sauropod dinosaur and the evolution of Brachiosauridae. Ooh. Yeah, that's the name of the paper. So this dinosaur was found in a museum, as is actually fairly common. And really what that means is they collected it a long time ago, didn't do a thorough analysis of it, and just kind of had it sitting there unnamed in the Natural History Museum in Paris since 1934. So it's quite a while. What is that, 80 years now? Something like that. Pretty good amount of time to sit there. So it was described without a name back in 1943. And since then, it's been called the Dampari sauropod. What do you think? Is that French, that first yeah. word? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the area where it was found in eastern France. And then it's also been known as the French Bothriospondylus because it looks similar to Bothriospondylus. <laughs> Not surprising. And people had kind of classified it as a Bothriospondylus, but, you know, just assumed that that's what it would be described as if it got formally described. But these researchers from London and Paris looked at it and they ended up naming it after the old French word, vivre? Vivre. Well, I can't do that noise. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently that either means a legendary winged reptile or a beautiful woman, depending on <laughs> which. It's kind of a proper noun that's been used in multiple ways. And the beautiful woman lives in a swamp and protects a ruby. So, <laughs> Like a reptile. Yeah. Swamp woman. Maybe, but mm. she's beautiful, so I don't. It's kind of strange. So, well, maybe she has wings. Maybe, yeah, that would help protect rubies, I guess. <laughs> so the full name is Vuivria damparisensis. I'm going with. It's always hard when things get Latinized, and French is pretty different than Latin. But anyway, it's kind of surprising that it hasn't been described before. Because they actually had quite a few bones compared to some of the other specimens of Bothriospondylus. So you'd think if that's what they assumed it was, you'd want to describe it and maybe even set that as the new holotype. So they have teeth, vertebrae, ribs, shoulder blades, and bones from the hips, forelimbs, hind limbs, and feet. It's really quicker to say the things that they don't have. <laughs> 
it's just missing the skull and most of the vertebrae and most of the ribs, but otherwise they've got pretty much everything. So pretty complete dinosaur. They did find theropod teeth in the area, but there aren't any tooth marks on the bones, so they're not sure if it was scavenged while it was alive, or maybe it was buried before anything tried to eat it. So in the title of the article, it mentions the evolution of Brachiosauridae. The reason they mention that is it kind of helps to resolve where Brachiosaurids fit within Sauropoda. And we might have mentioned this before, but Brachiosaurids are kind of this transition into Titanosaurs. So they're, you know, really large sauropods, obviously, but they're pretty early for titanosaurs. They're kind of late Jurassic, early Cretaceous, and they have some features that look kind of like titanosaurs and some things that look more like other sauropods. So they usually get categorized within titanosaur forms, and that's the case in this study as well. So it kind of reasserts that notion that brachiosaurs are titanosaur forms, not true titanosaurs, but titanosaur forms. And this Wevria <laughs> is estimated to be between 164 and 156 million years old, and that puts it in the late Jurassic. And as the title implies, it is the oldest brachiosaurid and therefore the oldest titanosaur form yet discovered. So it gives a lot of information about those basal titanosaur forms, kind of that evolution into these huge sauropods that we saw in the Cretaceous. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's a cool guy. Maybe they'll actually put it on display now. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Just take a head off a Camarasaurus and slap it on there. Depict it as a winged reptile. and Put yeah. a ruby under it. Yeah, good to go. <laughs> yep. There's also a new paper published in Facets, which I had to look up what that was because I didn't remember seeing it. And it turns out to be a pretty much brand new Canadian open access journal. Hooray! Yeah, I like open access journals. In the new journal, they describe a Chupalong, I think I'm saying that right, which was found outside of China for the first time. And Chupalong is expected to look a lot like Ornithomimus. So you probably have a pretty good idea what those look like. And it's from the late Cretaceous, really the latest Cretaceous, potentially. But this new find was in Dinosaur Park in Alberta, Canada. So pretty long ways away from China, although back then it wasn't quite as far. Interestingly, in the paper they listed it as Chupalong, but not as Chupalong henonensis, which is the species that was discovered in China. So they're putting it in the same genus, but potentially as a different species. And that's kind of like how Brontosaurus was for a while described as a species of Apatosaurus. And there's always this fine line of, is it different enough to get its own genus? How about, is it different enough to get its own species? Or is it a subspecies? Or is it just a different gender or something? possibly within the same species. There's all these difficult decisions to make, but they decided to put it in the same genus, but a different species. And you don't see that very often with dinosaurs. Generally, if dinosaurs look different enough to get their own species, they put them in their own genus as well, just because it's hard to make that distinction. So in this case, this means that Chupalong is probably originally American and then moved into Asia later. And that's because this Chupalong was found from a formation that looks a few million years older than the original discovery. So as the authors put it, that would make it the, quote, 
first ornithomimid genus with a transcontinental distribution, end quote. Pretty fancy distinction. World traveler. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it was probably a different species. I wouldn't be surprised if later it got put on its own genus just because that's a pretty common thing to happen. Maybe in a hundred years. <laughs> like with brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. There's also a new paper published in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology by John A. Whitlock, and it's titled, Was Diplodocus Capable of Propylinal Jaw Motion? Propylinal means basically moving forward and back while chewing. So as we've mentioned before, Diplodocus has sort of peg-like teeth, and there's two proposed feeding methods that Diplodocus might have used. One of them is so-called ground-level browsing, which is just like any modern herbivore, basically, other than like a giraffe, <laughs> you know, just eating stuff on the ground. And then the other potential option is stripping branches. And they've hypothesized that these peg-like teeth would have been good for that because they would have just kind of grabbed around the branch and then ripped the leaves off, but they wouldn't have done any chewing or anything. They would have just swallowed the leaves whole. So Whitlock looked into the branch stripping option and since we actually have diplodocus skulls, unlike most other sauropods, like we just mentioned another sauropod where we don't have the skull, it's actually possible to look at the jaw and how it might interact and be able to move. So it's been previously proposed that diplodocus would likely need to move its lower jaw kind of forward, almost like an underbite, in order to effectively strip branches. That sounds unpleasant. Yeah, but I mean, we kind of do it too. If you think about biting something with your front teeth, mm. sometimes you'll push your bottom jaw forward a little bit to get a little more contact there. Mm. So it makes sense. And to test that, Whitlock reconstructed digital versions of the skulls with muscles, but he found that they couldn't move their jaw forward very much, although they could move it from side to side, kind of rotate it. So it's still unclear how they ate. He didn't say in the paper that... He thinks that means that they didn't use this stripping branches approach, but it definitely doesn't help solve the problem. It would have been nice if it was a little more definitive. So Next study. Yep. We'll have to come up with another way to look at it. Maybe we can piece it together. There's kind of an inconsistency between the tooth wear patterns and the type of teeth and things. It's weird. They got weird teeth. They were doing something. <laughs> Well, they weren't just for show. <laughs> yeah. He even mentioned in the article that there was a theory for a while that Diplodocus ate algae off of rocks, and that's how it got these unusual wear patterns on <laughs> its teeth. But that would be a lot of algae. <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of bending down. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just keep your head close to the ground then all the time. True. Thanks to Luke on Patreon for sharing this next one with us. The largest Japanese dinosaur fossil has been found, and it was found in the mountains of Hokkaido. It sounds pretty epic. It does. Hokkaido sounds really cool in general, in the mountains of Hokkaido. And it sounds... was the largest one found. Yeah. yeah. Although compared to the largest dinosaurs found in other places, it's not particularly large. So this one's about 8 meters or 26 feet long, which doesn't even make it to like a large abelosaurid kind of size. Still big. Yeah, it's still pretty big. They have pictures of it laying out on a giant sheet, and it is pretty complete. The skull is pretty fragmented, and most of the bones are broken. They said there's over a thousand pieces, mm. but other than that, it's got most of the bones. It's got the limbs and the ribs and 
back and tail, neck, all that good stuff. And it's estimated to be about 72 million years old. It's obviously a hadrosaur of some sort, but they didn't name it in the news report where they first mentioned it. And they say that at the time, quote, the area was covered by 80 to 200 meters of seawater, end quote, which is really weird that there was a hadrosaur that made it to the bottom of a sea that was 80 you know, meters, which is like 200 feet deep and didn't get eaten and is still pretty articulated. So I wonder if that might be a misinterpretation by the news that reported it. Or it was covered in algae. Nobody noticed. <laughs> Inconspicuously sunk to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, pretty weird. I was thinking maybe if it was 66 million years old, it could have been like one that actually got killed by the Chicxulub impact, and then there wouldn't have been anything around to eat it. <laughs> but it's 72 million years old, so that doesn't work. And that probably wouldn't make sense anyway, because it's in Japan, so it wouldn't really wipe everything out instantaneously. It would have died a slow death. Yeah, real nice. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to Kevin for sharing this with us on Facebook. We finally have evidence of iguanodontids in Western Canada, and I know a lot of people have been waiting for that. <laughs> so the footprint is in the Gladstone Formation in southwest Alberta, and that means that it's from the early Cretaceous, which is different than most of the stuff we hear about from Alberta. Most of it's from the late Cretaceous, and that's because Dinosaur Provincial Park is from the late Cretaceous, and all the stuff in the Royal Tyrrell Museum and the surrounding area are typically late Cretaceous finds. The early Cretaceous stuff is in western Alberta, where there's a lot more plant life, so it's a lot harder to find fossils and things like footprints. So, like I said, this one's from southwest Alberta, and in the early Cretaceous, that's when Iguanodontians were at their peak of diversity, and it was before other hadrosauroids made it up into Alberta. So that's how we know that it's an Iguanodontian. It's also interesting that the footprint is wider than it is long. It's 45 centimeters wide and 43 centimeters long, so it's almost like a square. <laughs> but actually, if you look at it, it's more like a fan kind of shape with three toes, but really big bulbous toes, you know, almost like a cartoony kind of foot that you'd expect on like a, you know, big hadrosaur kind of foot. Or something almost webbed. Yeah, it kind of has that look to it. And in American units, what are, they, what are they called? Imperial units? That's 18 by 17 inches, in case you're wondering. At the end of the paper, they say, quote, the fossil footprint evidence demonstrating that basal iguanodontians were present in Alberta during the early Cretaceous provides encouragement that their body fossils will be discovered eventually, end quote. Cool. <laughs> so if you're looking forward to some iguanodons in western Alberta, Hang in there. I don't know. That's very vague. Provides encouragement. <laughs> just yeah. trying to sound optimistic about it. I think it's just because, like I was saying, with the plant life, most of the places where you'd want to look for the fossils are kind of hidden. Mm. So it's just, and there aren't as many people there, apparently. There are a lot more people that walk around the areas in eastern Alberta than western Alberta. Eventually, though, they'll probably find something. I'm not the biggest Iguanodon fan, so I'm not really too sad that they haven't found anything there yet, <laughs> but... <laughs> More dinosaurs are always good. Yes. 
Next in the news, University College London posted a specimen of the week, the ProAvis wax model. So this is a model that's over 100 years old, and it's made of wire, wax, and feathers. And it's based on a sketch of ProAvis, or ProAves, which was, quote, a theoretical missing link between non-avian theropod dinosaurs and early birds such as Archaeopteryx, end quote. So it came about in 1906 with William Plain Pycraft, who thought that early birds were gliders. And then in 1907, Franz Nopska suggested running dinosaurs flapped and eventually flew. That's the ground up model. Yep. So this over 100 year model is based on the 1907 version. And it looks like it's scaly and it's got a long tail and long stout legs and feathers on its outer arms. And the model is from the University Museum of Zoology, Cambridge, and may have been made by a student. It was supposed to be trashed in the 1990s, but Mike Coates saved it and brought it with him to the University College London. And it's a pretty weird-looking model. It does look pretty weird. The thing that stands out to me is how few feathers it has for being a transition involving Archaeopteryx. Yeah, it looks kind of like a puppet. Yeah. But but a solid puppet. And... A puppet that has very little fuzz or feathers on it because it's just like the tiniest row of feathers along the back of its arms and around the edge of its tail. And that's basically it. It just has these tiny feathers and they're all like flight feather style. (laughs) It doesn't have any kind of interesting proto feathers on any of its body. So it's like it's just got these feathers that would let it fly if it had more of them, but it just has a few (laughs) so it can't fly. (laughs) It's pretty interesting. And kind of ugly. But cool that it survived so long. Yeah, it's a good piece of history for sure. And speaking of history, Nine News shared a feature about Morrison, Colorado, which has a lot of dinosaur history. So it all started in 1877 when Arthur Lakes found dinosaur bones, and he reached out to Othniel Charles Marsh, but Marsh didn't really respond. And so Arthur sent samples to Edward Cope, because Arthur was hoping that someone would pay him to keep excavating the area. As soon as Marsh heard that Cope was potentially interested, he ended up hiring Arthur Lakes to continue searching the area. Because remember, these two were big rivals. And this is around the Bone Wars time. Mm -hmm. So for two years, Lakes and a team excavated the area, which was a big site of the Bone Wars. And they also found the first Stegosaurus and Apatosaurus fossils. And after Lakes finished excavating, the quarries were deserted and nobody knew where the site was for 123 years, which seems pretty crazy. But Arthur had detailed notes and sketches and paintings, so researchers used them to find the quarries again in 2002. And now the site is home to the landmark Dinosaur Ridge, and people can visit and see bones, fossils, and tracks. Cool. That reminds me of one of the pictures in the article about Vuivria. They went back and found the original site, too, and they have a picture where on the left half it's a sketch showing what the cliff looked like and then or maybe it's just a black and white photo i'm not sure which and then on the right side it's a color picture from today Hmm. and it's so hard to recognize Mm -hmm. because so much can change in 80 years or in this case like 150 years so they there are these lines and they're like that's where the cliff used to be and then it goes into like the brush but you know to paleontologists they can see the distinction of these different areas Hmm. It's pretty cool and obviously very difficult to do in practice. Yes. Because it's all like looking for similarities and like, oh, there's this hill. And then to the north, there's this other hill that's mentioned in the notes. Yeah, I think that happened with some of the Barn and Brown's findings, too. Yeah, a lot of the earlier ones where they didn't have GPS. (laughs) (laughs) 
Next, we have some news about Dippy, the diplodocus from the Natural History Museum in London, who, as we know, has been moved and replaced by a blue whale. Boo. <laughs> yes. But before Dippy was dismantled and in preparations for travel, because Dippy's going to be traveling around the UK for a while, the museum used a laser scanner system to make accurate measurements of the skeleton. And the scanner captured the surface detail and took multiple scans of many parts of Dippy from different angles. This process, I guess, took about two hours, and it gives a digitized model that can help reassemble the cast on the tour around the UK. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it makes sense that they say that they will use it to help reassemble, because you probably wouldn't use that for any kind of research or anything, since Dippy itself is made from casts. Yeah. If you were going to do it, you go probably to the original. Yeah, or to make more models of Dippy or something. If you really want the authentic Dippy yeah, and not that original one that's not Dippy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And speaking of digitized dinosaurs, biology professor Ryan Carney has created digital animations of dinosaurs, including Archaeopteryx, and his goal is to research the origins of flight. And we all know dinosaurs were some of the first things to fly. Yeah, like pro aves. <laughs> I guess so. No, not really. Anyway. <laughs> so his creations, digital creations, can be viewed in VR, and he has them integrated into his course at the University of South Florida's Center for Virtualization and Applied Spatial Technologies, or CVAST, which sounds awesome. I think if I was going to the University of South Florida, I would definitely take one of these classes. Mm -hmm. And he just got a $10,000 National Geographic Society grant to keep working on this. And basically what he's doing is he's scanning in these different fossils or using already digitized information and then animating them to kind of get a better feel for what they would have been like in three dimensions, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And I think he said that there's plans to share it a little bit more. Oh, I hope so. If yeah. it's in VR, it'd be so easy to share. It would be. Next, the Dinosphere at the Children's Museum in Indianapolis was listed number three as top places in the world to see dinosaur fossils. This is according to Forbes. So the museum has a whole bunch of dinosaur fossils and casts. And when you walk into the Dinosphere, you see a T-Rex, Triceratops, Gorgosaurus, and a bunch of others. And current fossils on display include Leonardo, the mummified dinosaur, Draco Rex, and I know we have a few listeners who either live near Indianapolis or have been to that museum, and they've said that it's really good, and we hope to visit it soon. Yeah, we drove through Indianapolis almost a decade ago now, but we didn't stop at the museum. We didn't know about it back then. That's true. Those pre-podcast days. <laughs> Next, we want to give a quick shout out to Marky, one of our patrons, and also a featured volunteer on the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs website. So congrats. In her interview, Marky said that she heard about ISMD from us, and now she handles their Twitter account and gets to interact with paleontologists, paleoartists, and other dinosaur enthusiasts. And she's loved Mongolian paleontology since she was in college and read about Roy Chapman Andrews who's a really cool person, and her favorite Mongolian dinosaurs include Protoceratops, Oviraptor, and Velociraptor. So pretty awesome. Keep up the great work, Marky. Yeah, that's really cool. ISMD does so much cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Next, dinosaurs were seen crossing the Clifton Suspension Bridge in the UK to promote the animatronic dinosaurs coming to Bristol Zoo. The dinosaur on the bridge is named Denzel and is one of the 11 dinosaurs coming to the zoo. And Denzel, quote unquote, escaped <laughs> the zoo and hung around for photo ops. 
Denzel's similar to a T-Rex, and it has blinking eyes and sound effects. It's just, you know, a man in a suit, or maybe a woman. A person in a suit, but a realistic-looking suit. A strong person, because it's not one of those light, inflatable suits. (laughs) Yes, yes. Next, I just heard about a one-man dinosaur band out there. His name is Peter... Kolakowski, and he's based in Arizona, and his band's name is Dinosaur Love. Whenever he's on the stage, apparently he wears a green T-Rex head, and he sings songs about meteor strikes and dinosaurs in love. Mm. And Peter writes, plays, and produces all his own songs, and is inspired by the Beach Boys, or at least that's one of the recent influences. So according to an interview in Phoenix New Times, his favorite dinosaur is Ankylosaurus course it Jared. is that's the best dinosaur well, yeah he says quote because he's a bad a and he's got a club on his tail though he did say if he could be any dinosaur he'd want to be a protoceratops so we'll have to check out his music protoceratops is a pretty weird choice especially if your favorite is ankylosaurus why not yeah, just go surprise. with ankylosaurus i don't know maybe it was too hard to choose yeah i mean protoceratops looks pretty cool but it's pretty small i go with something huge yeah maybe i don't know i don't know you can hide when you're small I think if I had to be a dinosaur, I'd go with like a harpy eagle. (laughs) I want to be able to fly for sure. Yeah, that'd be helpful. So we have some fashion news. The $800 Saint Laurent dinosaur sweater. I think I pronounced that right. It's a dark sweater with a green T-Rex head is making headlines again. So two NBA players on the same team, Patrick Patterson and PJ Tucker, showed up in the locker room before a game wearing the same sweater embarrassing (laughs) anyway they're on the toronto raptors team so i guess that kind of makes sense yep i think that's the only non-avian dinosaur professional sports team at least that i've heard of (laughs) it's definitely the only one in north america i don't know about in other countries yeah i don't know too much about that there should be more dinosaur themed ones you know t-rex makes a pretty good mascot i feel like but nobody has gone for it there's like 700 bears (laughs) but nobody goes for t-rex What's up with that? <laughs> no idea. Go write a letter. I guess so. <laughs> to Berkeley. They're one of the many Bears <laughs> mascot teams. Next up, the fifth annual Canadian Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting is coming up next week. And that's going on from May 15th to the 17th in Dinosaur Provincial Park. And it's hosted by the University of Alberta, which makes sense. It's pretty close by. A few highlights from the abstracts are a new troodontid from the Horseshoe Canyon Formation in Alberta. There's also a new oviraptorid that provides a rare glimpse into social behavior in dinosaurs. Cool. That one sounds cool. There's cranial ornamentation development in prosaurolophus. Also interesting because those saurolophines have some pretty crazy ornamentation. Ceratopsian dinosaur survives a broken neck. Pretty intense paper. (laughs) And then life history of hadrosaurids from the dinosaur park formation. Doesn't include iguanodontians, though. (laughs) But I'm interested to see what they mean by life history. It could be anything. Could be. And then there are also a couple articles on dinosaur eggs. And there's one on teaching paleontology more effectively with that philosophy where they talk about kind of flipping the classroom inside out or whatever where it's like more interactive vr maybe yeah (laughs) they talk about how in primary schools it's come up a lot but in like post-secondary it doesn't really happen much it's still a kind of the socratic method you know somebody stands in front of the room and tells you everything and then you go memorize it 
So interesting to see what they come up with for teaching paleontology that way. Yeah, because actual paleontology is so hands-on. Yeah, exactly. We'll see what uh, comes out of these publications if they get some news coverage at CSVP. And as a reminder, for all of our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial of their audiobook service. And we always like to plug our one book that's on Audible, What Happened to Brontosaurus. So you can check that out if you're looking for a dinosaur kid's book with some scientific themes and up-to-date information about how Brontosaurus became a dinosaur and then wasn't a dinosaur genus for a while and then is a dinosaur genus again. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice synopsis. Yeah. <laughs> There's also Danny and the Dinosaur, which if you remember from last week's episode, we talked about how that's being turned into a film. So you can get ahead of the game and read the book. See what it's all about. Yeah. There's actually two versions of the book on Audible, one that was made in 2006 and then a 50th anniversary edition that was made in 2015. Well, obviously you go for the 50th anniversary edition. Yeah, it's one minute longer. There you go. How so, long is it? Nine minutes. That's a decent length for a kid's book. Yeah, it says unabridged, but I don't <laughs> see how you could abridge it. <laughs> if there was an abridged picture book, that would be just the worst. <laughs> Just cut out like the middle five pages. <laughs> yep. It's got some good reviews. People who like the book, they like the series. It's part of this series called I Can Read. Me too. Yeah. So good for kids, especially kids who like dinosaurs and beginning readers. Although one of the reviews says great book for kids of all ages. So what does that mean? One through 17? Uh, they didn't specify. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> Anytime. So anyway, if you want to download your free audiobook today, Danny and the Dinosaur, or What Happened to Brontosaurus, or there's actually a fair number of dinosaur books up there, and other books, of course, then go to audibletrial.com slash inodino. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash inodino for your free audiobook. And now we're going to go into our interview with Taya Boothu who just got back from Mongolia doing some awesome work for the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs. We're joined today with Taya Voodoo, a director at the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs. Taya recently went on a trip to the Flaming Cliffs in Mongolia to scope out the area for uh, a museum for the Institute. Hey guys, it's really good to be back on I Know Dino. Yes. Yeah, so I can start off just talking a little bit about why we went this time and what our plan was and how it went wrong <laughs> <laughs> and how it went right in the end. Don't worry, it ends well. Cool. So what was exactly your goal? So our team was a good mix this time, actually. So it was myself, Balortsit Segmenjing from the AMNH. Um, she's our Mongolian paleontologist and the president of the AMNH. And Dan Churry, actually, who's the park paleontologist at Dinosaur National Monument, came with us. And for reasons that will become evident later, I think. <laughs> and uh, Walter Krim, who's an architect based in Philadelphia, who's also um, been in touch with us for some initial consultations about, hey, we think we might be building a museum, so we guess we should talk to an architect. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, he's, he's a friend of the organization and agreed to come with us and help us get a feel for the location for where this museum might be and do some consulting. 
Cool. And then we also, of course, had our educator and translator, Bintiria Mankbat, who's based in Ulaanbaatar, and she came along with us as well. So you had a whole crew. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So when you went... You had some difficulties getting there. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? <laughs> yeah. So if you read our blog, um, I posted a, a <laughs> I did a series of updates actually along the trip, and there's this huge gap actually where I left everyone hanging for like <laughs> a month. <laughs> so um, so we got to Ulaanbaatar. We set aside two weeks for the whole trip. The goal was to spend most of that time near the Flaming Cliffs checking out the area, trying to find a good location for a museum. But we also needed to meet with some government officials, people in Delanzagad and also in Bulgan, which is the closest town to the Flaming Cliffs. So we set aside two weeks, about two days there and two days back for travel because it's a really long flight to Mongolia from the U.S. Did you fly like straight there? Or did you have to go lots of <laughs> individual trips? So there's a layover at Incheon in South Korea. Hmm. And we took Korean Air. We were all coming from different places. So Walt started in Philadelphia, Ballor started in New York, Dan started in Salt Lake City, and I started in San Francisco. So we all got in separate flights. And Dan actually had the worst of it because he had a connecting flight. Um, and I met him at SFO um, in San Francisco. So we got on the same plane together from San Francisco. And then uh, we all met up at Incheon at the gate and then had time for dinner. So the first time we all met in person was in Incheon, actually, at the airport <laughs> in South Korea before getting on our connecting flight to Ulaanbaatar. <laughs> And that's basic. That's like the entire trip around the world, basically, because that's like all the way opposite. A, a pretty whole much. continent and an ocean, and then a, a sea, and then a, a small part of another continent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. About half the planet, pretty much covered right there. <laughs> and then once you got there, you had like crazy weather for Mongolia, right? Yeah, so that did happen. Um, we, we spent one night in Ulaanbaatar, and then we hired two drivers, and all got on the road down to Delanzagad, which is like the capital of Amnagovi-Aimag, which is the South Gobi province. Hmm. The drive itself is about like 12 hours, so there's an entire day just on the road. And that's like a new paved road. There's like a couple of potholes there because of the extreme weather conditions. But overall, like we're going about 65, normal drive, like good road trip conditions. The occasional like a herd of goats or horses or sheep or camels <laughs> <laughs> um, may cross the road at any given time. But that's Mongolia. So we get, we get down there and that's a really easy drive. And we were going to spend a day or two in Delanzagad and we met with some government officials there. Some people we'd met previously, a gentleman named Suarhu and Tushin Bayar, who had both given us like a bit of a tour the last time around and have been in, in communication with us and big supporters of the idea of a museum at the Flaming Cliffs for some time. Cool. So we also met with uh, Monk Bayar, who's the deputy governor there, and he's definitely like a big supporter of the project. There's no one who's like, no, we shouldn't build this museum, who is actually a player in this. And we haven't met really any opposition. There's been questions about funding and stuff like that. But mm. overall, like everyone is pretty excited about this museum. So we were going to get on the road and go down to the Flaming Cliffs and stay in the town closest to the Flaming Cliffs, Bulgan. And then there was a snowstorm. (laughs) (laughs) In, what is this, March? Yes. (laughs) So this is March. 
And it's unusual for any precipitation to happen in the Gobi Desert, right? That's a given. It's the Gobi Desert. Um, <laughs> so that in itself, it was a bit unusual. Um, but, you know, not like totally out of, out of the ordinary. And it's going to be cold in March there still. Like, that's a given. I was, we all had our coats packed, so we were okay there. But then it was a lot of snow. <laughs> so there were like a few feet of snow, which oh, is really unusual in the Gobi. And actually, it caused a lot of problems locally. So we weren't the only ones affected. There were a, a couple people who actually like were reported missing. Um, people couldn't get hay to their livestock because the dirt roads covered with snow. Like you just don't even know where the road is anymore and you can get stuck in a drift. Um, pretty dangerous conditions. And then like this blizzard itself, like in the whiteout conditions, you get lost and then you freeze to death. <laughs> so it's pretty dangerous. So we stayed in Delanzagad for, I think, four extra days, just waiting for the storm to pass and then waiting for the snow to melt a little bit and for the road to get clear before we can make it. That's crazy. It's also, it was one of the biggest storms in what, 10 years we or were, something? We heard from some, yeah. So they we heard around town that like, yeah, no one had seen snow like this in about 10 years at least. So it was definitely a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Lucky you. <laughs> right. Actually, if a little bit of a funny thing, when it first started snowing, like the day that we arrived in the Lansetgad, they say it's like, if you arrive in a new place and it snows or rains, it's considered lucky. Like you've brought something lucky with you. Oh, okay. if that happens. And there's, there's a little more to it than that, that I'm totally missing, but it's like rain um, on a wedding day kind of. <laughs> so we did kind of joke around a bit, like when the snow just kept going and kept going like, oh, we must be really lucky. It's <laughs> <This is> great. <laughs> but it did result in us not having as much time as we wanted at the flaming cliffs. But when we finally made it, oh my God, <laughs> like we literally didn't know we were going to make it there until we actually made it there. So when we finally got down to Bulgan and spent the night, even then, like the road between Bulgan and the Flaming Cliffs, even though it's like much, much shorter, mm-hmm. there had been nobody really on it. There was like one car that tried to go up the night before and we were kind of waiting to see if they made it, you know, like... <laughs> Did they make it? They, they did. Okay. They did, actually. So we decided to go. And we were guided by, in our last chat, I might have mentioned uh, Monk Saihan, who's the ranger. She had been the ranger at Bayanzag Park. And like, only one ranger, right, for the whole park. And also, I think she works on another park as well. But since then, she'd been promoted, a much-deserved promotion, I have to say. So Monk Sehan and her husband guided us out in a lead car, and they like have that whole territory totally memorized. Mm. So we got out to the Flaming Cliffs without a single hitch. <laughs> it was like a total breeze. We were well, wishing like they'd been there with us the whole time. <laughs> and we finally got there, and it was just like kind of a spiritual experience even though like I'd been there before like in September I was just like wow I can't believe we actually made it after all of this and yeah then we only had a few hours to scout out the place and get our make sure our architects had like a few prime locations picked out and had like a good intuitive feel because if you've seen pictures of the flaming cliffs Oh, you cannot get the scale of it at all. Like Mm -hmm. you can see as many pictures, you can see hundreds of pictures of this place, but you just don't have the sense of scale, the sense of like how you're surrounded by the sky and how far it takes to walk like to the edge of a cliff from where you're taking the picture, you know, Mm. and just how that rock feels under your feet because it is really soft sandstone and it can Mm. erode. And if you don't have that sense of like, Okay, it's really obvious when you're there that like this whole cliff is in the process of eroding. <laughs> like you don't want to build a museum there without knowing that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that's interesting because yeah. that's pretty different than how it is in like Montana where yeah. it's much harder rock and you can kind of go up to a cliff. And if you want to get something out of the cliff, it's kind of a nightmare because you're going through rock. Whereas there, it's just yeah. it's crumbling. <laughs> and it's part of the reason we need a museum there so badly, actually, because every year when the snow melts and that rain, it doesn't happen a lot. But when it does, it's like, oh, man, that's a lot of rain. <laughs> like it really erodes that cliffside. And when you have that happening, you have new fossils being exposed. So every year, new fossils get exposed out of these cliffs and people find them and they can get damaged or they can get stolen or anything. And yeah. That's really the most urgent reason that we need a museum there or some kind of facility to start with. Right. But I know uh, because of these crazy weather conditions too, right, that made it obvious these other benefits the museum could have. Yeah. So that was one thing that really was unexpected about this trip because not only the snow was unexpected, but the reality of getting stuck in that snow and seeing and hearing the stories of people who their lives were totally interrupted because they couldn't get from Delonzo to get home to Bulgan or vice versa. Hmm. And it's because it's a dirt road. And as soon as it snows, you can't see the road anymore. There is a number of problems that come up. Hmm. Like, for instance, not being able to get hay to your livestock. If you're a nomad living in the Gobi Desert, you depend on your herd, like utterly. And if your herd... <laughs> utterly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, like, yeah. it, it's, it's a real issue in Mongolia. If you lose your herd, basically you've lost your whole way of life. Yeah. And that's when you have to move into the city. And then you end up on the outskirts of Ulaanbaatar in a family gear burning a coal stove and just kind of living off of the support of your community and your government. And there's programs to help these people for sure, but it's actually become a bit of a crisis. Mm. And we can get into Mongolian politics some of the time maybe, but <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know a ton about it, but I know that's real. And one of the reasons Ulaanbaatar has such terrible winter pollution is because of the number, the sheer number of um, coal stoves from people who literally that's happened to. Mm. The power plants in the middle of the city don't really help either, but there's a lot going on there. And Ulaanbaatar actually has worse pollution in the winter than Beijing by wow. like a factor of five. Yeah, it had mostly cleared up by the time we got there because it had started to warm up mm -hmm. and people were using their stoves less. And But there were like a couple of nights in Ulaanbaatar where like you just smell the smoke in the air mm. and you can't get away from it. So around the Flaming Cliffs, is there a lot of infrastructure? Are there a lot of people living around there? Or is it, oh, do you yeah. have to go pretty far to find like a nomadic group? That's a really good question. So immediately in Bayanzag Park, there's a couple of gear camps. So those are for tourists. There, I think there's five that are in the park. We counted it. I'm pretty sure that's right. I'd have to look at my notes. But there's these gear camps, and that'll be like one family that then hosts tourists. Like hmm. there's a few nomads who will have tourists who they let stay in their gear with them. Is that where you stayed last time you were there? We were in a gear camp. So it's like there's a central building. It's like a permanent structure. And then like five or six gears. And you can rent one out basically oh, for okay. a couple of nights. And, you know. And there's showers. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Um, they vary. So a lot, a few of them are like that, where there'll be like one central like dining hall and then the gears that you can sleep in and then the shower building. That sounds pretty cool. It is pretty cool. We should do it. <laughs> Definitely. It's a great way to spend a few days in the Gobi Desert, for After sure. After a few days of traveling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And then there's um, nomadic families who will make sure they're close to the park so that like tourists can stay with them and they have a little bit of extra income that way. And it's mm. 
I think probably just an interesting experience for everyone that way as well. I think it's that's probably a cool thing to experience for sure. And then moving out from that, there's a lot of herders. They travel and the herds will go in and out of the park. And we we don't have good demographics on that right now. That's one of the things that we've got to start collecting. And then, okay, on a, on a normal day, not in like a snow-covered day, it's about like a 45-minute hour drive to Bulgan, maybe a little less. I've forgotten. There's, How big is that town? <laughs> it's an extremely small town. So Bulgan Sum, a Sum is sort of like a county or like a, a designated like rural area. Hmm. So there's Omnagovi Imag, which is like, a Imag is like a province kind of. And then inside Omnagovi Imag, there's Bulgan Sum. Mm-hmm. And then inside Bulgan Sum, you have the Flaming Cliffs, Bayanzag Park, which the Flaming Cliffs are in. And the town, which is just sort of called called Bulgan, although it can't get confusing because there's also a town called Bulgan in the northern in northern Mongolia, which is much bigger. So if you just say Bulgan, people will think you're talking about this other town in northern <laughs> Mongolia. <laughs> but we're actually in Bulgan Sum, but the town itself is just sort of referred to as Bulgan. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's a bit confusing. It took me a while to like distinguish those levels <laughs> mm-hmm. to give you like a feel for the town. There's sort of one main street. And there were cows walking down Main Street when we arrived. Um, it's all dirt. There's nothing paved anywhere around. There's a community building, which I, I believe is was constructed in the Soviet era. Um, it's like two stories. And there is a couple of guest rooms in there, which is actually where we stayed on this trip. There's also like a little theater inside. And that was kind of cool. We got to use that to play. There's this documentary. I'm sure you guys have seen it. It's called Dinosaurs Alive. And it has a whole chapter about the Flaming Cliffs. So it's one of the pieces that we use in our workshops. We play the section on the Flaming Cliffs so the kids can see like paleontologists working there. Mm -hmm. And then we usually like talk over it in Mongolian because it's not translated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we got to play like that whole section of the documentary for a bunch of the people from the town the night that we were there, which was pretty cool in this cute little theater. That is cool. Yeah. I believe there's only one restaurant. I might be wrong about that. There could be another one. But when we were there, there was only one open and we had every meal there. It's a little one room building with like a little kitchen. I have a picture I can show you guys. Cool. <laughs> but yeah, a little one room building with a little kitchen and some of the best food in the Gobi, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was delicious. And there is another building that's a community center. This one this one we were in was actually the cultural center. I probably called it the community center, but it's the cultural center. There's another one's a community center. And then there's a gas station (laughs) and that's it. And there's a little, there's a row of shops on the other side of the street. (laughs) So they sell like sundries and things like that. But one of the things actually that, that we're going to try and address with our further work there is the fact that when tour guides bring tours to the Flaming Cliffs, they don't bring them to Bulgan. They Mm. stay at a gear camp at the Flaming Cliffs and then they just have usually brought what they need. They're there for a day or two. They move on and go to like the Hungar Sand Dunes or something next. And the town itself is kind of losing out on that opportunity. So that's something like if we have a museum or something there, we can start telling tourists, hey, there's a town here too Mm -hmm. and help bring in some economic development. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of benefits. Yeah. How familiar are the people in that town with dinosaurs and all the stuff that goes on in Flaming Cliffs, the history and everything. So that's one of the things we really wanted to know on this trip. And we were hoping to spend more time in Bulgan and actually like do a bunch of surveys and really figure out what that base level of interest and knowledge is in the town. And also like, how do people here feel about us building a museum? Because that's really important. Like, 
we we have connections there and we know how they feel, but how does everyone who lives there feel? And we want this to not just be something that's put in there by some Americans. Even though our leader is Mongolian, like that's a possible perception that we might deal with. This has to be something that's really from the beginning, from the outset for the community. Like yeah. and something that's trying to counteract the years of taking away of fossils that have happened from this place. Like we're trying to bring them back. We're trying to give back to this community. We're trying to make some place in the world better, you know? Mm-hmm. And not just for science and for the fossils, but like for the people who live there. And I'm like, we're starting, we're trying to be part of this larger movement in science, I think, that's going towards that and waking up and realizing, hey, like, the reason we exist is to help communities and to make places better, you know? So anyway, we did do some surveys. (laughs) (laughs) The morning that we went out to the Flaming Cliffs, myself, Balotzeg, Walt, our architect, and Dan Turi. And our friends from the local government and um, Han and her husband. So we had, a, what's that, like a pretty good, that's a pretty good party. We had three cars. <laughs> so we went out there and poor Binderia, we left her behind. <laughs> <laughs> she still hasn't actually seen the Flaming Cliffs and I feel terrible about no. that, but that will change that this summer. <laughs> she stayed behind in Bulgan and collected some surveys. There weren't a lot of people who were out and about in the town. The snow and then also like, just it being a weird time of year where like a lot of people were just away doing something else. And Hmm. so she was able to speak with eight or nine, maybe 10 people. And she recruited one of the kids from the night before who'd come to see the documentary with us to tour the town and help her find people to interview. And I'm actually, she wrote up like a blog post for us about that work. So I'm about to publish it today, but we found some interesting results. So overall, Adults in the area don't know almost anything about dinosaurs, which I've heard this story from Belor, and like I, I know like she mentioned it in the last interview we did, mm-hmm. and I hear it like every interview I do with her, like the same story. Like, yeah, I know people in Mongolia who are right by the Flaming Cliffs don't know about dinosaurs, but seeing those results myself for the first time and just looking at this and being like, basically, one of the questions is like, what's a dinosaur that you know of from Mongolia? Or just a dinosaur that you know of. (laughs) And only one person was able to come up with a name and it wasn't quite right. It was almost protoceratops, but like, like she didn't remember it that well. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not because these people are uneducated. It's not because they're ignorant. It's not because they're like, whatever like Western stereotype you might have is completely wrong. These are educated people. They're intelligent, like they're business owners. One guy had been like a sheep herder. He was like 75 and he'd been a sheep herder and then he'd been an accountant and then he'd been like a mechanic. And like, now he's like, I'm retired. Like, <laughs> but they like, no, he didn't, he couldn't name a dinosaur. And that's a failing on the part of science itself and paleontology. Mm-hmm. And like everyone who's gone there and taken fossils and not given anything back. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really kind of eye opening seeing like just laid out there in the survey, like, <laughs> in kind of a stark way that, hey, people really don't know anything about dinosaurs. Yeah, and there isn't a museum anywhere around there, so why would they? Yeah, too? well, actually, one of the ironies, I mean, museums are done differently in Mongolia. So <laughs> that's another one of the things that we're up against there when we meet with people is this preconception of like this Mongolian kind of museum where during the Soviet era, there had been this effort to build museums in like a lot of the little towns. So they will have a little museum. It's in an old structure. It's fluorescent lighting. It hasn't had the same level of attention put into how the building is constructed 
in order to lend itself to these exhibits mm. the way that you might find in more like small town museums in the U.S. So it's more like going into like a warehouse that has some skeletons in well, it kind of thing? it was constructed as a museum. It's oh, okay. just like it's using these older sort of low-budget construction methods. Gotcha. And like it's from the Soviet era. It feels... I don't know how better to explain that. Like, it feels like an old Soviet building. Concrete. And I don't want to, like... Yeah, yeah, it'll be made... Like, the front might be cinder blocks or something. Mm-hmm. And it'll be, like, a couple stories. And there's obviously, like, a lot of love and care and attention that have gone into these places. So you can't go back and say, like, these are places. Like, they're not. I shouldn't say that word, probably. <laughs> Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> um, you can bleep me. <laughs> yeah. Like they're they're places that I put a lot of attention into mm-hmm. and people have done really like the best they can. But they're also the model is different. And this is something I learned just in this last trip. Museums in Mongolia are funded by the government. They have an entrance fee and they might charge like an extra like five dollars if you want to take photos or something mm-hmm. like that. So they don't have gift shops, they don't have memberships. They don't have local patrons. They don't have like independent or private funding. They don't have grants. It's not that kind of model. They get all their funding from the government and from those entrance fees. And not, not, most people who go there are going to be like school groups or something like that because they don't have like traveling exhibits. And we're talking about like the little museums that are going to be like the lo- local IMAG museum or something like that. Not like the big museums in Ulaanbaatar. There's a couple of those that are really spectacular museums. Mm-hmm. But I mean, to an extent, like you still have, even at the Central Museum of Mongolian Dinosaurs, they ask you to pay like $5 to take photos. And you know, that's the prerogative. It's just not like the kind of model that we've come to accept here in the States where we understand that like the more photos you take and share on social media, the more it's like free advertising for yeah. us. So please take all the photos you want. <laughs> That's interesting because when we were in Budapest, that's the only other museum I've been to where there was a photo taking fee and Budapest was in Soviet block too. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I think there was a time like right after the Soviet Union collapsed when there was a lot of economic struggle in Mongolia and in like all of the former Soviet bloc Mm -hmm. countries where people just were trying to come up with extra ways to have bring in any cash, yeah. you know, and that was one of them. I, I don't know if that's really where it came from, but that's my hypothesis given what I've heard. Yeah. So <laughs> where is, where are these like smaller museums at? Because there's the yeah. one in Ulaanbaatar, but where are the other? Well, so the one in Delanzagad, actually, there's a little museum oh, in Delanzagad and it was actually right next door to our hotel. <laughs> oh, really? That's cool. <laughs> yeah. So there's down the main street and Delanzagad actually is a very pretty little town. They've got mm-hmm. like a whole green strip down this center. There's like a main street and they've got this green park with like a lot more trees than you'd expect to find in the Gobi. <laughs> During the winter, it was a bit sort of like on like the East Coast where you have just a bunch of brown dead trees in the winter and it's a bit grim. But I, t- I saw it in September and it was beautiful. I can for that. Um, so, and even in the snow, it has a charm to it for sure. So there's, there's the government building, which is this like beautiful classic building with like a square and like a statue with a there's a lot of statues in Mongolia of, of men on horses, as you can imagine. And I don't exactly remember which one this was, but there's one of those. And then there's the Gobi Sands Hotel, which is this sort of crazy older building that's like circular. So mm-hmm. it's like this big cylinder hotel. <laughs> and we were up in that one. And then right across on the other side of that, there's the museum. And there's also a camel museum in Delanzagad. <laughs> so if you go back behind the government building in the other way, <laughs> you come across another little... 
little like Soviet era building that's got a camel museum inside. And I think it might be the only camel museum <laughs> that exists. And it's amazing. That's great. <laughs> yeah. You learn a lot about camels there. That's really cool. Yeah. That's interesting that there's a dinosaur museum that's, you said that's like an hour away from that smaller town. So it's not actually a dinosaur museum. It's oh, a, okay. it's, um, it's one museum that's in three buildings. So they've got the cow museum, like the one that's, that was next to our hotel is like the cultural museum. Okay. And it has a couple of dinosaur things in it, which mm. is, which are pretty cool actually. And then there's another one, a third one that's the natural history museum that we didn't make to it because it's another hour away, like in the mountains. And like, mm. if the snow was bad down there, it was going to be really bad in the mountains. So we didn't make it. <laughs> I still haven't been to that museum, but I hope to go this summer. I'm going to have to get those museums on our map. Because yeah. a, yeah. a lot of these museums, there's like no way to find out about them. You have to find them in some book or something because yeah. they don't have a website. It's not listed on any kind of yeah. map or any, yeah, it can be really difficult to and find these places. Especially like when you're dealing with a different alphabet and it's mm -hmm. actually hard to enter the Google search term because yeah. you don't have the Mongolian alphabet like on your keyboard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've come across that. <laughs> yeah. Like Beinzog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that park, you mentioned that the Flaming Cliffs are kind of a smaller part of this park. Is the park somewhere that people go to like visit? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is how big is it? The park itself, I, I don't have a good square mileage. That's actually one of the things we have to nail down this summer. It's a very new park and it's a locally designated park. So there's Mayanzag is not a national park. Hmm. And it is actually only like been a few years since it's been a protected area. Oh, so right. there's a lot of information that's not totally nailed down yet. That's one thing we're working on with the local government. And I would say like, as it is right now, keep in mind, there's no museum, there's mm -hmm. no marked trails, there's no signage. It's a great place to occupy an entire day. So mm -hmm. you want to spend a night like, and it, this is usually what people do. They'll spend a night at a gear camp check out the flaming cliffs, check out like the Zag grove. So Bayan Zag literally translates to rich in Zag and Zag is a kind of tree that grows there. So there's this one area that's just a grove of these Zag trees, which are, I'm going to say like velociraptor height. So <laughs> they're like, they don't quite come up all the way to your waist, but they are definitely like some of the only trees around. So you call them trees and they're kind of cool looking. They're sort of like twisty and kind of like a Joshua tree sort of. Um, a little not, smaller. <laughs> they're, I, they're not, they're more like, I hate to, this is not a good comparison, but they reminded me more of like some cross between like a juniper and a sage, mm. but with totally different leaves. That's <laughs> all I got. <laughs> okay. Um, if, if you, I don't know if looking up Zag will really turn up the, the right pictures, but in Russian, they're called Saxol, which is S-A-X. A-U-L, I think. But I like Zag better. And it's by and Zag, so it yeah. mm -hmm. all clicks together. I've been using the Mongolian term. So you check out the Flaming Cliffs. You check out the Zag Grove. There's like a seasonal lake that sometimes might be there. <laughs> <laughs> and like drive around. And probably a lot of people who go there are going to like spend some time walking around in the hills, see if they can find a dinosaur bone. Which, you know, <laughs> we wanted to have that controlled a little bit. Um, <laughs> and hopefully not like no one pocketing them either. So. Yeah. <laughs> That probably happens all the time. And then you're probably going to spend that night back at your gear camp and then leave the next morning. Okay. If we add in like our designated trails, maybe scout out some campsites, make it like developed in the way that a national park would be in the U.S. Like Dinosaur National Monument actually is a great model for us. Mm -hmm. And that's why we invited Dan Cherry to come with us. And he's had a lot of ideas already about like 
how we might, but and keep it okay. I gotta say this officially: he was not there on the part of the National Park Service. He was there on his vacation time. Hmm. So this is a favor that he was doing for us to just to come and help out and you know spend his vacation with us. Who's and worked he, in an area like this for right, like right, thirty yeah, years? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's not there in any official capacity, but yeah. he he has been a great help to us and has had a lot of ideas. And yeah, I mean, just like, where can we put trails? Like, where's good signs? What's the history of this place? The archaeology, the whole Roy Chapman Andrews story. Like, this is the, the Flaming Cliffs, the first place where dinosaur fossils were found in Mongolia. So where did that happen? Who found it? Like, what dinosaur was it? It was Protoceratops, by the way. <laughs> That's why Protoceratops is our logo. Yeah. And then like, with the museum and some high quality stuff there, and then like, what kind of other educational programs can we have? So we're looking to turn this into like possibly a week-long experience. Like if you're going to go to say Dinosaur National Monument, you're going to camp there. You're going to see like the Wall of Bones. You're going to maybe do like a river trip. You're going to like do a few trails. You're going to hike around. You're going to go through a lot of bug spray. (laughs) You're going to like check out like the Sound of Silence trail and see like the amazing like geology and learn a bit while you're there Mm -hmm. and you know that's not a lot to ask from a park Mm -hmm. and Bionzag has that in spades we just have to mark it out put in the signs put in the programs put in the staff and start building it (laughs) not not a tall order at all right (laughs) you you will do it piece by piece though yeah 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 it's interesting. You mentioned Dinosaur National Monument, and mm-hmm. it seems like, yeah, there's a lot in common. Even the way you describe Mongolia kind of reminds me of Utah a little bit, like a little bit barren, <laughs> snow, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but although snow is a little bit unusual. Yeah, yeah. Really nice scenery. It also is interesting. You were talking about how pictures don't really give you a sense of scale. Right. And I had that exact experience because we looked at some pictures of the Flaming Cliffs. And to me, it kind of did look like the quarry wall in Dinosaur National Monument. Right. But really, it's way, way taller than that. There's also this VR experience that I forget who made it. It might have been the American Museum of Natural History, Mm -hmm. but they kind of combined all these videos and pictures. And it's at the Flaming Cliffs. It's really cool. But there's one part where they show them on top of the cliff and it's this little tiny like car and like people (laughs) up there. And you're like, oh, that cliff is way taller than I thought it was. Yes. So you can't really, (laughs) or maybe you could do the same thing where you're kind of enclosing part of a cliff face, but it would only be like the very bottom of the cliff if you did something like that. Yeah. We've had a conversation about in situ is what they call the the model at Dinosaur National Monument where they're in situation. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly come up as a possibility, but the, the stratigraphy is all different. So like at Dinosaur National Monument, you have a situation where you've had like a flat riverbed that's been pushed up conveniently. So you actually have what was once a flat plain mm-hmm. that the dinosaurs got fossilized into, and then it was pushed up into a really convenient vertical like position. <laughs> like, like hanging just, art on a wall. Like, hey, <laughs> let's turn a floor into a wall. Easy. Yeah. But at Bayanzag, it's actually all still floor and it's all Mm. still horizontal. So there's not been that uplift. In fact, like there's been remarkably little change there of any kind (laughs) for 80 million years, which is really unusual in paleontology. (laughs) Other than it dried out a little bit. (laughs) Like it hasn't even been underwater. So the bones aren't permineralized, which is one of the reasons they're so well preserved. And they have 
this pristine white quality. You find a dinosaur bone in Bayan's egg and it's almost indistinguishable from an animal bone. Wow, that's really cool. From a living animal bone, yeah. Well, a dead living animal, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dead extant It's a white animal. bone, you know? That's just, it looks like it's just an old animal bone. That's and cool. that's what people have thought who lived there. Like locals, <laughs> like traditionally, like it, it, it's been assumed a lot of the time that these are just really old animal bones, which they are. But the true oldness of them <laughs> hasn't been really made apparent. Old until... thinking like a couple hundred years, not tens of millions of right. years kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the possibility for an in-situ display would be something that's more like in the floor okay. or something like that. So it'd be more like things that, I think that's in Connecticut, they have the prints on the floor and oh. then they kind of have a raised, like almost like a yeah, catwalk yeah. thing that goes over. That's something over. we've talked about. There's also like a really cool display at the um, Utah Museum of Natural History mm-hmm. where they have like these clear floors and they have an oh, exhibit yeah. underneath and it's not in situ, but like you can still see through the floor to see like some stuff down there and it's pretty cool. So yeah. we've definitely played around with ideas like that. And um, I can't, we don't have anything definite yet. Like mm-hmm. I can't say like, this is what we're planning yeah. at all. Like about anything actually i can't even tell you exactly like where we're looking at building this museum i can tell you that we picked two locations that are really promising that we really like a lot but that's as far as i can go as from here it's a lot of there's a lot of legal work that needs to be done mm-hmm. there's a lot of budgeting that needs to be done even before we can start fundraising so mm-hmm. although we are always accepting funds <laughs> we're really happy to get any donations <laughs> yeah how can people donate so um, our website is mongoliandinosaurs.org, and we've got a how you can help section, and you can go in there and donate. And you've got some new stuff in your store too, right? Yes. <laughs> so we finally, I've been working on the store myself. <laughs> That's one of my roles, <laughs> my many roles. <laughs> and yeah, there's uh, your regular, we've got some t-shirts. We actually have a couple of new designs that we're working on. I got a new graphic design volunteer who's helping us out. So oh, we got cool. some exciting new t-shirts on the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, some mugs and at least one throw pillow (laughs) (laughs) and some stickers. We've got our Bionzag Velociraptor stickers, which are cool because they're in Mongolian Cyrillic, which people always ask about. And our logo stickers and logo t-shirts so you can get that protoceratops skull and wear it around. (laughs) (laughs) And I just added a new item that's this. I don't know how to describe this, but you've got a piece of felt, and this is really common in Mongolia. <laughs> felt is very, very common. It's what they make gears out of, so mm. literally people's homes are made out of felt and wood, but the felt is like the covering. I came across these in the little one of the little gift shops. Uh, there's like not really a gift shop gift shop, but one of the gears in the gear camp where they sell gifts. Yeah, they had these around, and they're just these felt like mats that have like a dinosaur illustration in them and I had to have them. So I bought them all. (laughs) And yeah, I got them, I got them out here and there were only seven of them. So by the time this airs, hopefully we would have sold them all, but if not, there might be a couple left. Well, now there's only six because we had to have one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So yeah, there's one with the Tarbosaurus and one with the Triceratops. Which, neither of which, um, I have to say, have actually been known from the Flaming Cliffs fauna. <laughs> yeah, but they <laughs> but also have awesome. that zag tree on it, too. Yeah, yeah. So it's the zag tree has a pretty distinctive look to it. So it's pretty obvious, like, this is, like, meant to be a picture of Bion's zag. I think they're really cool. I wasn't able to track down the actual artist 
who created them. I, I was told that there were some local artists that made them. But I, one thing I definitely want to do is try and track down more local artists who do this kind of thing. And there's a there's so much creativity in the Gobi, you guys. Like, there's a lot of people who just craft and, like, make things and are artists and who are... There's even people who, like, are interested in dinosaurs and know a bit more and, like, want to do more. And that was one of the things we got from those surveys, too. Like, even though uh, almost everyone we surveyed, like, knew nothing about dinosaurs, and some of them even were like, you know, I think a museum would be cool because I'd be able to, like, prove to my friends that they were real, <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's doubt that dinosaurs are real yeah. in this place. Well, they are crazy. I mean, it's kind of an <laughs> insane thing to imagine. It's like a dragon, yeah. basically. It's a hard thing to explain. Yeah, yeah. Like, but being able to show the actual fossils yeah. and, like, show, like, yeah, this came from here and it would have looked like this in life. And you could go of. on a trail and maybe see some in situ exactly. fossils and stuff. Exactly. It would be so big for the people who live there, not just, like, adding value to tourists, like... In some way, I want to say, like, whatever, the tourists. Like, this is about, like, inspiring, like, awe and wonder among, like, a local community who would have so much to benefit. And that makes the biggest difference, too. Like, we've seen in China and Argentina and stuff, you get so many more awesome discoveries when the people that are local to the area value it and want to research it than when, like, the American Museum shows up once every decade and (laughs) digs for a week and then takes a few fossils and leaves. To be fair, I think the (laughs) AMNH has been at the Flaming Coast almost every year. (laughs) So they are there pretty frequently. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I've been thinking about that a lot personally as well, because, as you know, I'm also hosting a diversity workshop at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting in August in Calgary. Mm -hmm. So... That's with a few other people. And it's been in the back of my mind, like, what are all the different facets of this diversity in science issue? And actually, in paleontology specifically, it becomes really evident as soon as you start thinking about it, mm-hmm. that you need people who are from the places where the fossils are found yeah. going into this science. Yep. And like, not just to have that connection for like, whatever feel good reasons, but because you have to have people on the ground who know that community who know the people who are making the decisions about that location, who know the people who might be like someone's cousin, like (laughs) decided he could sell those dinosaur bones in the black market, like people who are invested in that community, who are from there, who know the people on the ground. And then you also need that knowledge and that background in the field of science, not Mm -hmm. just like out in the field, but in the scientific field, you need those people contributing back to the literature and being part of our community as scientists. Yeah, and we've seen cases where there's like a local farmer who was helping with an excavation. And since they were helping, they were like, oh, well, you know, with this kind of rock, you kind of handle it this way. And it mm-hmm. it was really valuable to the to the science as well. Nice. Yeah. 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 I think that's happened a lot in Australia in the outback. Really? Yeah. Australia is another place we need more people. But there's just like nobody who lives there. Is the problem. <laughs> Like, I don't know how many miles you have to go in the outback to find even a town with one street. <laughs> there could be some interesting analogs in Australia now that you mention it. Yeah. For our work. Even like the Flaming Cliffs. Like, I could see places in Australia being named that. <laughs> so I know you're going back to Mongolia, to the Gobi this summer. What are your plans? So right now, the plan is to go back for a few weeks in July. And that will be my third trip to Mongolia. We'll have, I think, a smaller U.S. team and we'll be just sitting at the Flaming Cliffs this time. So our expedition in September, we did this whole crazy expedition around like a bunch of different places and it was awesome. It was super hectic. We got a lot of area covered. We got people introduced to dinosaurs who'd never heard of them before. 
It was incredible. This time, because we were starting to focus really heavily on this museum project, we're going to just plant at the Flaming Cliffs and stay there for a couple of weeks. We want to bring down the mobile museum again. So that's like our bus converted into a dinosaur museum that the AMNH donated to us. And it's been down there once before. The road is a bit tricky for a bus like that. And especially all the exhibits with like the screws can get loose on the bumpy road and stuff. But I think it has one more solid trip down there in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> And we can use it as a bit of like a test run for our museum. So we want to make sure like the tourists who go there have access to it. We're going to do more workshops, but like with the local community. We're going to be surveying people who visit. We want to get as much information as we can about like what this museum needs to be, what it needs to address, what people are willing, how much are people willing to be involved with it and just kind of do like a test run for museumness at Bionzag <laughs> and also get some other like grand groundwork for the park done. So collaborating really closely with the local officials to carefully determine the park boundaries and figure out where trails should be, where like the, where should we have historical markers? Where should we have signs? What should those signs say? What are the important vistas? Like where precisely should we put these trails so that people can get good views, but not too much access to actual fossils, but like enough to like give them something educational so they can learn something, but not so much they can actually like vandalize things. So that's been a concern at Dinosaur as well, you know, hmm. um, and at any paleontological resource park. And honestly, like just the natural setting is so beautiful and stunning that there's a ton of trail ideas for just the walk through the Zag Grove, you know, stuff like that. So if anyone wants to help specifically with your upcoming work this summer, where can they go? They can head on over to mongoliandinosaurs.org and I'll make sure that there's a donation button up for the summer work on our main homepage. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to catch up with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure talking with you guys. <laughs> and thanks again, Taya, for a great interview. Yeah, it's always great to hear about the progress that the ISMD is making, and we're really looking forward to what kind of museum you guys are going to make. And now on to our Dinosaur of the Day, Uteranus, which was a request from Marcos via Patreon. So thanks, Marcos. The name means feathered tyrant, and it was a tyrannosauroid that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now northeastern China. It's the largest known dinosaur with direct evidence of feathers. Yeah, it's super awesome. Mm -hmm. There's only one species, though. It's Euteranus hualai. And the species name means beautiful in Mandarin and refers to the beauty of the feathers. Ooh. <laughs> it was described in 2012 by Xuxing and others. And there's three nearly complete specimens, an adult, a subadult, and juvenile that were found. And they all came from one quarry in Liaoning Province, China. The largest specimen is the holotype and consists of a nearly complete skeleton with a skull. The juvenile is estimated to be eight years younger than the adult, the holotype. And the holotype was 30 feet or 9 meters long and weighed about 3,100 pounds or 1,400 kilograms. As Euteranus grew, its skull got deeper and more robust, and its lower legs, feet, ilia, and forelimbs became relatively smaller. It was a bipedal predator. The adult and subadult had these wavy crests on their snouts, which were probably for display. The fact that an adult was found with a subadult and juvenile has made some people wonder if Euteranus hunted in packs, but it's hard to know for sure. Yeah, you could always think maybe it's just one family or a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. 
The preserved feathers on Euteranus were about 8 inches or 20 centimeters long and filamentous, and the feathers covered multiple parts of the body. It was on the pelvis and foot of the holotype, and then the subadult had feathers on the tail, and the juvenile had filaments on the neck and upper arm. So, based on this, it's possible that feathers covered its whole body. Yeah, that'd be cool. That would be. And if you look at a lot of depictions of Euteranus, the dolphin is covered completely Mm -hmm. in feathers. And they come up with all sorts of crazy colors for them, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've seen red a lot. So these feathers may have helped regulate their body temperature, or the feathers may have only been where they were found on the bodies and used for display. It's hard to know for sure. Euteranus, however, lived in a climate that was about 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius, so the feathers may have helped keep it warm. The first known feathered Tyrannosaur was Dilong, named in 2004, and then since then, other feathered dinosaurs have been found, and Euteranus is 40 times heavier <laughs> than the previous largest known feathered dinosaur, Bapiosaurus, which is a Therizinosaur. There's a feathered Therizinosaur. We got to talk about that one of these days. <laughs> There's a lot we have to talk about. We have like 50 dinosaur requests right Just now. Just in case Therizinosaurus weren't weird enough, you got to throw some feathers on it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's true. That's pretty cool. But back to Euteranus. So Euteranus <laughs> is considered to be a basal Tyrannosauroid, and because it had feathers, that means it's possible that later Tyrannosaurids, even as large adults, may have had feathers. But late Cretaceous tyrannosaurids like Gorgosaurus, Tarbosaurus, Tyrannosaurus had scales on parts of the body where Euteranus had feathers, so it's also possible that scales evolved secondarily. Most T-Rex skeletons were found in sandstone or siltstone, which are too coarse to preserve feathers. So it's also possible maybe T-Rex had feathers and we just haven't found the specimen with preserved feathers yet. Hmm. Uh, Euteranus was found in fine sediments which is partially why we found the feathers. Euteranus had three fingers on its hand, which is unlike the two-fingered Tyrannosaurus and Tarbosaurus, and it was missing a specially adapted middle toe that helped support its weight, which is what makes it a basal Tyrannosauroid. It's part of the family Proceratosauridae because a 2016 study found Euteranus to be more basal than Dilong. If you want, you can see Euteranus in the Land Before Time 14, Journey <laughs> of the Brave, two of them... Our sharp tooth opponents. I would recommend against it. I don't know. Maybe one day we'll watch it. Oh, man. We could do a whole podcast series on the different Land Before Time movies. Well, I was just thinking like movie marathon. That's so Spend many. Weekend. Maybe that's too much. I watched the first one and first I think I saw great. part of the second one and was very disappointed. But you, you've seen like at least the first five, right? I don't remember. I remember you telling me they're all bad except for the first one. Well, the first one's amazing. The second one was okay, and then it went downhill. Okay. I saw somebody on Reddit the other day saying, like, the first five or six are pretty good, and then they go bad. So I guess it just depends on how much you like that style, and if you well, really a, like the new dinosaurs they introduced. It's a totally different style from the first one. Yeah, the first one's pretty dark. Yeah. And I think the later ones are a little more cheerful. Well, they become sing-alongs. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like sing-alongs when I was a kid. I might be okay with it now, though. I don't remember any song being that great. We'll have to watch it. Maybe not number 14, but... <laughs> I don't know. I think if you're going to watch more than three, you might as well watch them all. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> what do compare. you do for the next 28 hours? <laughs> well, they're kids' movies, so they're under an hour. Are they? Yeah. Oh, okay. So maybe only like 15 hours then. Yeah. Very good. (laughs) 
And our fun fact of the day is that about 30 million years before the Chicxulub impact, dinosaurs went through another extinction event, and it's known as the Cenomanian Turonian extinction event. And really, the name is just of two ages in the middle of the Cretaceous period that border the extinction event. And the extinction was caused by a quote unquote oceanic anoxic event. And really, that's just a period of low oxygen in the ocean. And it's possibly caused by changes in ocean circulation or maybe by plankton diversity changing and then just gobbling up all the oxygen. It's really hard to tell. There's still competing theories on it. But interestingly, this may have wiped out the spinosaurids because they completely disappear after this time period. And there were at least two other anoxic events in the Mesozoic. There was another one earlier in the Cretaceous, and there was one in the Jurassic. So it may have also affected dinosaurs at those times. Hmm. Yep. Dinosaurs went through a lot. When you're around for hundreds of millions of years, a lot of stuff happens that you need to adapt to. And not everybody makes it out. That's true. <laughs> but they did pretty good. They did. And they're still doing really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, birds. Yep. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you would like to join our growing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.